Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be here for a new session of interviews with global thought leaders and um, experts that are leading the world and creating the most amazing projects in different areas of industries. Today we have with us for a new session of citiesabc.com profile interviews, Emmanuel Daniel, which is a person that I deeply admire for a lot of different reasons, both for his ethics of work, but as well as a uh, a leader in the financial and the banking industry worldwide and as well of course the creator of the Asian Banker which is one of the leading organizations worldwide uh, leading defining and as well researching the financial and banking industry worldwide so this series of interviews with citiesabc.com um, are aiming to look at thought leaders and opinions and the different ways of looking at the present world that we are seeing that we are facing as well with a lot of challenges, but as well like any challenge or any crisis with the uh, opportunities and the uh, different ways we can actually create hope and create direction. So this is going to be a, a, a particularly special interview given that I have a, a huge uh, respect for Daniel, but as well um, an, uh, a relationship that goes for a long time. So. Emmanuel, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, the, probably to start about introducing yourself for the, our audience and as well who you are, your background, education, these things. And I'll, of course, we'll ask a lot I'm of I'm Emmanuel Daniel. I uh, am the founder of The Asian Banker 22 years ago, right here in Singapore. In fact, uh, I should show your audience a little bit of Singapore, which I get to see from my house. Uh, that's the city and I live in an island just uh, uh, just outside the city and I see all the ships going in and out so I know what the, the uh, trade flows are like uh, at least by virtue of the weight of the ships whether they are full or not em empty um, and Singapore is a great city to be in to follow all of Asia we uh, we have a great team in Beijing uh, I spend a lot I spend um, at least a few days a month in Beijing except for since January this year because uh, of the lockdowns in the different countries, in, in China, in, in Singapore, uh, and now uh, around the world. Um, the, uh, the anchor organization that I originated and gave me the license to go out around the world and meet um, a whole range of uh, CEOs and chairmen of uh, financial institutions uh, was the Asian banker. Uh, with that uh, you know, name card, uh, I had access uh, on a global basis Sometimes because uh, uh, CEOs and leaders in the West want to know something about what's happening in Asia, and sometimes I have, you know, greater access with uh, some of the, uh, you know, leaders out in New York and in uh, and in London uh, than and sometimes someone in London would have. Uh, at the same time, uh, a front seat view of uh, a region where growth has been eight to twelve percent a year GDP growth, uh, and, and therefore. Uh, very vibrant and uh, and also uh, frontier in terms of uh, a lot of the new things that are happening in the industry. Uh, so that's I want to keep that definition or the profiling as general as possible. Uh, but over time, um, you know, I also cover wealth uh, uh, and um, and today philanthropy and, and and all of those areas. So uh, increasingly uh, a more holistic view of uh, how financial services is. Uh, is uh, transforming the world that we live in. And so to be able to do this, um, this chat with you, Denise, uh, uh, is uh, amazing because I think that this is like the defining moment 
uh, in all that the financial institutions around the world have been promising their customers, promising the world uh, in terms of the transformations that they they were they they thought defined them. You know, and I think that uh, this is judgment day for the financial services industry. You know, um, I think that um, we. I can go on talking, but if you, unless you have another question, but I just want to go into this theme. Uh, so before we go before, to the to this theme, Emerald, could you get us? I think this is. I want to do a proper profile interview with you. So can you tell us about your background? I know that you're from Malaysia. Just give your audience your history, because I think it's really important at the moment, more than ever, before we go deep on the financial industry. Your background. I think it's really important for people to understand because we have from a lot of relationship universities and you are a very inspiring person. But as well, in order to build something as amazing as what you build, which is in a lot of ways probably becoming bigger than the Financial Times in some ways and as well impactful, there's, there's an history. There's your history. So I think it's important to look at the history because at the moment we, we need that more than ever. And I okay. like the idea of the judgment day, but we'll come there. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Okay. So... Uh, if my background is of interest, uh, I was born in Malaysia uh, and both Malaysia and Singapore used to be one country. So I, I don't see this as being in another country, although technically they are today. Um, it's made up of a multiracial community of Chinese, Malay, Indian, uh, and of course, uh, original stock would be Indian, but I do not consider myself as being from India. Uh, I consider myself as being Malaysian. Uh, and that's important because I think after three generations or maybe four, um, we, we become defined by where we come from. Uh, and, and both Malaysia and Singapore, uh, if you look at the map of the world, it's, uh, it's at the crossroads in the trade winds that, take, uh, the sh that used to take the ships from China to India and then to the, uh, you know, to the Arabic world and then to the West and then from the West to, you know, to China. So this is where a lot of the world met. Uh, before and uh, it's a very cosmopolitan. It's the original cosmopolitan part of the world, um, and and then you put the icing on it, which is that we uh, had a we had a colonial past. Uh, both Malaysia and Singapore were uh, ruled by the British, uh, and uh, and then Indonesia by the Dutch, um, and then um, uh, Philippines, which is three hours this direction, um, by the Spanish, and then by the Americans, uh, and then you have Vietnam, and you've got Thailand, and so on. So um, uh, this part of the world, uh, from a trade perspective, uh, has a two to two, 2,500 years history uh, of just absorbing the rest of the world. Uh, and so when the first um, Portuguese ships uh, started to uh, you know, uh, sail the world, uh, they found their way to Malacca, which is just uh, north of here. Uh, and, um, and you have Alfonso de Albuquerque uh, and, uh, and, and people like that. Uh, and then you have the Spanish galleons, and then the and then the British, and so on. Uh, and the nice thing about having a uh, colonial past is that we didn't uh, jettison our colonial past. We we actually um, used it to create institutions that created the stability of the of the of the of the countries that I come from, uh, this part of the world. So I, I then moved to Singapore, did my undergrad here, did did uh, another degree in the UK. I'm. Um, uh, student member of uh, Lincoln's Inn, if that's if that's of any consequence, I trained to be a lawyer. For the first, and the funny thing is that on the day I qualified to be a lawyer, I just decided I just didn't want to be. And then I spent ten years of my life after that, uh, just bumming around from job to job to sort of feel figure out what I wanted to do. And the interesting thing is that 
1986, uh, and for that 10 years after that, uh, from 86, when I graduated to 96, where I started Asian Banker, uh, uh, I didn't want to be a lawyer. I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer uh, after having graduated as a lawyer. And, uh, and then I went into consulting and so on. Uh, and for that period, a lot of the businesses were highly local. So if you, I, I remember my first business trip outside Singapore was maybe 91, 92, around that time. Uh, today, if you are an undergrad and you joined any company in Singapore, you'd be on a plane within two or three weeks of having joined the company. You know? so, um, and and uh, Singapore is considered a highly developed country. Uh, therefore, the, the economy is very mature and, and all of the growth opportunities are in the developing countries around Singapore. Um, and, um, uh, and so I wanted a profession that, or a calling that could um, give me an excuse to meet leaders in many different countries. I found that the publication model lent itself at that time. Uh, and, uh, and then I thought also the banking was interesting because I would have been interested in government, but uh, many governments in this part of the world, especially in the 1990s, were very sensitive uh, and very political and therefore uh, there was no commercial you know, ways in which you could make money uh, from or make a living um, out of uh, different um, countries uh, covering them on a political front. Uh, the next level would be big business and the biggest of the big business uh, was banking. Uh, and so that's how I sort of meandered. I, I, I knew nothing about banking. I was in consulting before that. Um, and, you know, and sometimes people ask me, uh, you know, have you ever worked in a bank before? No, I've never worked in a bank before. Um, and sometimes you, you should never work somewhere in order to understand it from a strategic point of view. Um, and, um, um, and I call, the, I call banking the cathedral industry, meaning that if you landed in any country, uh, you land in Bangkok, you land in London, uh, the, the biggest business that defines that country or the city would be banking. And uh, if you met the bankers, you would basically be meeting some of the biggest decision makers in the country. Besides the cathedral, uh, banking is something that involves everybody's life. And from there, uh, an, an opportunity to, to uh, get to know, you know how the country operates and so on. Uh, in 1990, uh, I... Uh, I start 1999, sorry, 1996 is when I started the Asian Banker. Um, that is 10 years after I graduated and, uh, um, and was very easy because I just me and two staff and, and then uh, it was very interesting because uh, someone had called in and said, uh, sorry, we were trying to call somebody and said, I'm uh, my staff said, uh, I'm calling you from the Asian Banker. And because of the name, the Asian Banker, everybody, even in the even on day 10 of having opened your business, people thought that they knew it. So I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, you must be calling from the Asian banker. Yeah, we've heard of the name before. Uh, but, you know, we were like 10 days old, something like that. Um, but um, that gave me the, the, the calling card to go meet a lot of people. Uh, and I think that uh, within a short period of time, I became probably the most connected person uh, in banking from Japan to Australia, from the Philippines to India and to Pakistan and so on. And today we're called the Asian banker, very interestingly, but we have an office in Dubai. We do business in Africa uh, and, and, uh, and, and Central Asia as well and, and so on. And what's happening here is that the name um, doesn't define it uh, as much as what you do defines it. So we have created a few uh, best practices and a, and a few models by which we evaluate banks 
which are applicable in um, in any country. In you know, we, we we use the same models to assess banks in the U.S., for example, uh, operationally, business-wise, uh, and sustainability and accountability and all of those other elements put together. Um, you know, when you when you when you assess a business, uh, the elements are more or less the same. Uh, and when we went to Africa, uh, very interestingly, uh, I was asked by an African banker, so what are you going to call the African, uh, the Asian banker in Africa? And I thought about it and I said, well, the Asian banker, get used to it. You know? and, uh, and, uh, and after being there for six to seven years, uh, they, you know, they, it doesn't even strike their mind that we're called purple or we're called the color yellow. You know? we, uh, it's, um, it's the friendships, it's the familiarity that defines a, a business in wherever you go to. Uh, and the quality of the of the assessments that we provide, and it also helps, I guess, that today best practice in finance comes from everywhere, uh, and a lot of it is coming from this part of the world. So, if you talk about payments, if you talk about um, artificial intelligence, for example, um, and um, even in areas like uh, bottom of the pyramid, which is um, you know um, uh, financial services for the masses and so on. Um, a lot of the developments are pioneered in this part of the world uh, and then perfected. And they've not even arrived in the U.S. yet. And in, if you went to the U.S. and compared it to, you know, some of the uh, financial services you find in countries like China, uh, you would say that, oh, wow, uh, you know, uh, Asia is a lot uh, further ahead. Um, and so uh, um, people around the world are very interested to know what comes out of this part of the world. So that a combination of that, the familiarity uh, and the professionalism uh, has just opened the whole world to us. So uh, the Asian banker right now is of course is a powerhouse in terms of the events in particular, the research, the education, but as well the, all the, the different, uh, like you said, models and assessment that you've been doing. So can you tell us a bit about that? How do you put together this? Because of course, uh, starting 22 years ago, You've been actually building um, a very solid, not only um, organization, but as well an institution in the sense that is respected worldwide, but as well is leading in the sense of this network of banking industry and financial industry, which is not so, uh, I think, especially in Europe and in, in as well in the US, doesn't exist so much. You have much more fragmented, whereas I think with the Asian Banker, you managed to do this from the awards to the events, a community that really looks to struggle, to to look at different things. And as well, one of the things that I, I found uh, about the Asian Bank that is for me particularly fascinating is this um, relationship between different countries, different trends and different uh, operations, which I think misses, especially Europe, is missing a lot. Um, and as well, if you see in 22 years, Asia was initially much poor, much more uh, underdeveloped, but now is leading the world in a lot of areas and probably in terms of economics is going to actually take over the world. Well, took already, let's put it that way. How do you see this transformation in the last 22 years? Um, some of the, some of the, the hype uh, or some of the, the assessment or the perception is, I think it's, uh, you know, it needs, to be, it needs to be put in context a little bit. Uh, let me just see where to start, okay? Uh, firstly, uh, the cross-border nature of the business, uh, there is no substitute to taking an aeroplane, going to the next city, knocking on a door, shaking a hand, 
and and getting to know somebody and uh, and then trying to do it in that person's language. Uh, so Asia, just like Europe, uh, is many different countries with many different languages and and so on. Um, maybe uh, because a lot of the countries here um, were starting from a more basic level, so they appreciated when someone came from somewhere else to teach them something. Uh, but now. Uh, many of the countries have been building their own responses to, uh, you know, infrastructure and uh, and business models and so on. So, for example, Indonesia, which is uh, in that direction, um, it's um, you know it used to be the basket case of Asia, but today it's the it's the um, you know the gold cup of Asia because uh, even banks from Singapore want to go to Indonesia because it's got a population of 250 million people. Um, and it's got enough business models in payments, uh, in peer-to-peer -peer lending, uh, in uh, community services, and so on, run by native Indonesians, uh, which are incredibly, um, you know, very credible as, as business models, and so on. Uh, likewise, Vietnam, and definitely China. Uh, and China, you know, uh, some Chinese don't even remember the time when they were behind the rest of the uh, region. So uh, they, they think, you know, uh, Oh, you have what we have too. You know, uh, they uh, they just completely forgot that period. So, um, so we the, the 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 and in fact, this particular crisis is very interesting because um, it is um, we have a tendency to forget the plot. We we have a tendency to forget what it took to get to where we are and where we are actually at this point in time. Um, what Asia isn't yet is uh, it is a it is a hotbed for innovation, but it is not a hotbed for originating uh, innovation. Uh, it, it, it origin, ideas that are originated in other parts of the world, uh, they get perfected in Asia a lot. Uh, we, we, don't or, we don't originate uh, learning or breakthrough uh, you know, in that way. So, uh, so to say that the future belongs to Asia, um, uh, yes, there is a potential to it. Uh, but until we get past a few things, uh, you know, it's it's a um, it's a tentative future. It's not it's not a given. I, I don't subscribe to the idea that China is the total future or, or India or Japan or something like that. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question coming from you, or at least a comment. So, if you see at least most of the studies from um, leading organizations from PwC to to value walk and so forth they say that for instance if you look at the largest economies by 2050 we have China number one India number two United States goes to number three and Indonesia number four that you just mentioned and then Japan goes to number nine eight um, then you have five uh, position five and and six Brazil and Russia and Mexico actually even before Japan so that's a shift from the the conventional status quo of the financial and economical world that we have now to emerging markets and like you mentioned indonesia and um, and even well uh, of course uh, singapore is still leading in a lot of areas how do you see these changes because this is a massive shift uh, and as well of course now we're going through a massive period of change and increasing change that is going to shift and turn around everything so um you just mentioned that uh, you don't see Asia leading, but in, by numbers, it's already leading. Don't you think so? Well, if, if you talk about sheer size, yes. And I spend a lot of time in China. I'm intimately 
familiar with the country. I love the country and I love the people. Uh, and of course, I love all of Asia as well. Um, but, um, I, you know, some things have to give in order for... Um, the fact that China... China is an incredibly organized country. It's probably the most organized country in the world. Um, and it's, it's had a capability of organizing itself several times in the last 2,000 years. Um, and, however, that capability to organize itself runs in 200-year segments, basically. And so it's a kind of a cycle where the first 40 years are very fast, and then it reaches its zenith, and then, and then it starts to crumble from within, uh, you know, because of... Uh, the, you know, we're talking about the largest... Um, the, the largest community of people in the world. It's five times the size of the United States in terms of population. So when they organize themselves, the, 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 the critical mass that they're able to generate is five times that size. And uh, sometimes when Western people talk about China, they, they, they do not understand conceptually or do not appreciate conceptually what they're dealing with in terms of just the magnitude of it. Uh, so yes, um, uh, you know, uh, it does have the potential to be that way. But we also must remember that China, the largest country in the world, was ruled by foreigners at least three times in its history. And, and then you ask yourself, how did that happen? You know, by the, by the Mo Mongolians and then the Manchurians and then the Western powers, you know, broke it up and so on. Uh, and then you realize that internally, um, you know, holding it together, holding the center is a huge job. Um, and, and it's a job that the Chinese do at the expense of a few other things, um, and sometimes at the expense of innovation, for example. Um, so right now, a lot of the innovation in China is imported. In fact, uh, one Chinese assessment was very interesting. We outsource innovation to the U.S., and the U.S. outsource costs to China. You know, that, that's one way to, to look at it, because when you look at the amount of money that the U.S. spends on military, for example, trillions of dollars on military innovation and then the, the, subs, the, 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 uh, the, the, the results of that in artificial intelligence, in robot technology and so on, that, that, that gets, gets globalized. China is a beneficiary of that. Um, you know, um, will China be able to be an originator of ideas? If you look at the, the education system itself, they, they, there, is a, there is a ceiling on over everybody's head, which is you must respect your elders, you must respect the government, you must, um, you know, edit yourself in terms of what you can think and stuff like that. So with that kind of thinking, there's a limit to which, um, you know, um, a, a country can go. Um, an individual Chinese might be able, and they have, okay, if you, if you take the list of uh, Nobel Prize winners for Chinese, um, many of them actually are Chinese who not lived in China. They lived in the US, they lived in Taiwan and so on. So, um, so individually, a country of 1.5 billion people, uh, it's impossible not to have geniuses in there. But as a country, as, a, as an economic system, um, uh, it has to break through, it has to sacrifice certain things to, to get there. Um, you know, the US comes across as totally dysfunctional during the, uh, the, 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 the pandemic, but the, you know, they probably looked totally dysfunctional just before World War II started, or at the point at which Japan looked totally organized and and so organized that they were so cheeky enough to 
uh, you know, raid Pearl Harbor, basically. And, but the moment you get the U.S. organized uh, and they put money and resources into it, they, they created the atomic bomb. And, and right now in this crisis, they're just approving $2 trillion worth of, uh, of, uh, of incentives. You know? and, uh, and then I'm trying to recreate the, the process by which both the U.S. and China had built their pandemic response models and actually both started at just about the same time in 2003 after SARS, both benefited from, um, uh, from, uh, you know, from Zika and from, uh, from, uh, from AIDS and from uh, Ebola and so on. But uh, somewhere closer to 2019, the US sort of became dysfunctional uh, and, and, the, and, the, and China uh, benefited from that that whole process of being organized uh, right through that period, you know, and, and that's why you see China shining through right now. Now, so the thing is that um, the um, immediate narratives does not necessarily explain the undercurrents. Uh, and in the same way, uh, India, um, you know, always dysfunctional. Uh, and then you ask yourself like, why is it that there's so many uh, CEOs of US IT corporations who are now Indians and it's become a joke almost. Uh, and that's because to be Chinese, um, if you want to be good at what you do, and if you are good at what you do, and you're, if you're ethnic Chinese, you'll take a plane from the US to China and find a job there. If you're Indian, and if you want to be good at what you do, and you're really good at what you're doing, you'll take a plane out of India and you'll go and look for jobs elsewhere. So. The reason why the Indian, um, you know, um, diaspora has been more successful or seemingly successful on a U.S. stage uh, is precisely because India is dysfunctional. And the reason you don't see enough Chinese out of the global stage is precisely because it works. China is holding itself together and to be successful as a Chinese, you're better off in China than anywhere else. Um, neither of this explains that, that, uh, that, any, either of these two countries are, are going to define the future. Uh, they're totally capable of disintegrating eventually. Um, you know, during the Ming Dynasty, uh, within 40 years of, of, the, of the Ming Dynasty coming into power, there were ships coming in through here, right, right in front of where I am, uh, you know, uh, from uh, Chang'e and the, and the whole uh, flotillas, um, you know, making their trips to Sri Lanka and to, and to the Middle East and so on um, within 40 years. And then, and as quickly as it started, it disintegrated because the issues that they had within China, the, the attacks from the Tibetans, the Mongolians, and then, the, you know, the, the problems that the Ming Emperor had domestically, uh, found he, he had to sacrifice something and then it became more insular after that. So, um, the, the, the challenges of holding a huge country together versus the challenges of allowing innovation and creativity to breathe, uh, they are almost diametrically opposite to each other. Uh, and we haven't found the political models by which um, you know, uh, both can thrive together. You know? And in fact, I would even say that um, you almost need to be dysfunctional in order to be creative, uh, you know, um, and, and you would find, you would actually put, you know, the most beautiful, um, um, you know, creativity in terms of fashion and so on, 
takes place in Italy, you know, but uh, where it looks dysfunctional in many forms, but Italians take great pride in, in being original, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the innovations in the U.S. takes place away from the West Coast, East Coast. It, it takes place in the West Coast far, far away from everybody where people are just allowed to be themselves. So, um, so these are the elements that I look at to, to figure out which will be the societies that will define us in the future. Um, what is very clear is that large countries will now have uh, models by which to hold together. So any country that's more than 100 million in population, I take them seriously. China, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines. Uh, they, they just have the critical mass to be uh, you know, important economic entities. Um, but um, you know, but they, they're not necessarily the defining entity. So that's, that's what I, I don't see yet. Uh, and the West, I don't think, has, has lost the plot as it were. In fact, some of the things that the US and Europe, like for example, the EU as an entity, Southeast Asia uh, doesn't have a EU because we never had a war. But we are many different countries trying to behave like one economic entity. And, but we don't have the incentive that the EU had, you know. So in some of the problems that you have, um, uh, you're actually on frontier territory, a unified currency, for example. We are still trying to get cross-border payments going in Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, we, 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 we are very, very protectionist uh, country after country and so on. So, um, you know, I, I think that we, we take, there are frontier things in different cultures and different parts of the world at the moment none of them necessarily defining. Um, and uh, this idea that the whole future is going to come this way or that way, uh, is, is, um, there's two more steps involved in there in the process somewhere. Very good point. So, so coming to the financial industry and the banking industry, investing, you mentioned the Southeast Asia, you mentioned Africa, where we have a very strong footprint as well. And of course, um, <clears throat> India and China and as well Europe and US. How do you see the financial industry at the moment? And we go to the coronavirus after, but before that. So because we are in a crossroad, and of course the coronavirus probably is the judgment day, like you mentioned. But how do you see the financial industry, especially on these areas of the world that are more emergent? And not just on the, on the economical side, but on the financial side. Because there's the payments that you mentioned, there's the innovation on the banks, there's even the corporate uh, movements and the corporate structures. How do you see that being part, in, intimate part of that the industry? Okay, there are two parts, right? One is the, uh, the, the quantitative easing that's taking place worldwide and all that. And the other is the whole idea of financial services as an industry. Yes. Um, where we left it off before the pandemic started was that uh, FinTech was going, to re was going to define the industry. And what is FinTech? FinTech was meant to do three things. It was supposed to reduce the cost of business um, of providing financial services. It was supposed to um, make financial services more democratic and, and more uh, available to everybody. Uh, and the third is it's supposed to make it more convenient. Uh, and banks fell over themselves to say that they were absorbing this innovation uh, and this fintech innovation to be able to do all that, all the three, and uh, the pandemic has shown us that banks around the world have failed totally. Um, you know, and um, when you look in any country, uh, 
several things that banks should be doing. Number one, they should have gone digital by now. There, there is no excuse for not having gone digital to the extent that they have. And just to administer a lot of services, you still see banks sending um, delivery boys across town to get signatures um, and uh, you know, calling people and asking them to turn up at brunches with, with masks on and stuff like that. Um, totally inexcusable. Uh, so the, the, the technology innovation that was, uh, that was talked about, that banks said that they were investing in, uh, was not, is not sufficient uh, to pass the test of the current pandemic. Um, and and uh, a number of the innovations that should enable banks and traditional financial institutions to uh, pass on services seamlessly, uh, using technology, uh, they have not even started. For example, um, credit scoring. A number of countries have governments that are promising to backstop new loans, uh, concessionary loans, uh, and um, you know um, loans where the government guarantees at the end, uh, guaranteed loans uh, to the community. And in a number of countries, they're doing it through the banking system. And guess what? where is the banking system going in to do the credit bureau and credit scoring? The traditional credit bureaus, um, which does not tell you anything about uh, the credit status of the people borrowing, the, uh, you know, borrowing money uh, or the purposes for which they need the money today under today's circumstances. Um, in a number of countries, like in Hong Kong, in China, they... Um, uh, a number of peer-to-peer -peer players have built uh, credit scoring models around lifestyles, around supply chains, around um, you know proximity to customer uh, and need, and so on. Uh, and none of these banks are using them anywhere in the world. Okay, and on top of that, banks are not even setting aside funds uh, from their special role because they are licensed institutions. They should not be profiting from this crisis. In fact. At, in, in December to 2020, if any bank says that they were profitable, uh, they better be, have a good reason for it. Because if that profit came from the misery of all the people uh, in, the, in their society, uh, they did not set aside um, special funds, for example, to, to, to be loaned to uh, people in need uh, and to give back to their community. They've just been profit, profit, profit. And this is the one industry that is going to be profiting from this whole um, crisis uh, while all other industries are suffering. You know? And just think about it, okay? Now I go to the other aspect of it, which is that uh, country, governments are now making funds more liquid uh, and cheaper. So cost of funds is going to get cheaper. But in the next six, within six months of this crisis, that means from January to June, by June, we're going to have a very strong credit crisis because many, many businesses are going to have trouble paying their debts, paying their bills on time and all that. Uh, and the beneficiaries of demand for credit are banks. You know? And so they're going to have a business model where the cost of funds is low, but their, their propensity to, to benefit from credit is high. Um, you know, so, uh, and, and, and this uh, is not equitable. Um, you know, in fact, we are not already talking about it yet, but within the third quarter of this year, if this crisis uh, tarries and it becomes very clear that the banks haven't put their money where, you know, where, where it's needed, um, 
you know, even during, before the crisis, uh, many banks said that they were invested in fintech, but almost no bank had, uh, had a private equity arm that invested in fintech where they, they, they put their own money to figure out where the technology is heading. You know, they, they, would, they would assess fintechs to see if they were, they were suppliers in a traditional IT vendor type of a relationship, but they weren't investors in startups in order to you know, champion them to, 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 uh, to define the future. So, so banks weren't in... Um, so the whole, the whole risk model of where risk sits, risks today sits with taxpayers and governments, and it sits with customers, but it, the banks just don't carry the risks. Um, and and, um, and if in financial services, it's all about who carries the risk. That is the, the core nature of financial services. And so um, I want to see this conversation um, you know, coming to light. I want to see this conversation being put on the table, and I want to see bank chairmen and CEOs answering this question. You know, where were you when there was a pandemic? You know, uh, and what were you doing? Where did you put your money where, uh, where your mouth is in terms of uh, uh, being there with your people? Next to governments, the biggest, um, the biggest um, distributor of financial resources is the banking system. And it was, it was found, not, found wanting uh, during the whole process. Uh, in fact, it was found to be the beneficiary of, 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 uh, of government incentives. So, so now what I'm trying to understand is uh, what's happening with the fintech community. So some governments are, you know, providing financial aid to fintechs and so on. So then what is the, what is the game plan for the fintech community? Uh, here, uh, regulators have to be called into question, which is what exactly is the system that you wanted to build? You know, if you said you wanted to make financial services more easily accessible to the masses, um, you know, more, uh, more, more convenient, uh, and uh, and 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 uh, and reduce the the whole business of intermediation. None of this happened. You know, in fact, you reinforce uh, the role of financial uh, the traditional banks uh, in the economy. That's all you did. Uh, you know, so so even regulators, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, are called to question in that way. Now, what I'm saying to I am talking to a few players who are applying for banking, digital banking licenses uh, across in Asia. And um, what I'm trying to challenge them to do is this. I said to them that when you, when you apply for a banking license, for a digital banking license, all you're asking to be is another bank. Um, and within two years of getting your digital banking license, you'll start looking like a bank. You'll have to have the same problems of a bank. You'll have problems of capital. You'll have problems of liquidity. You'll be sitting there in the interbank market looking for funds. Uh, and you'll also have problems of marketing costs. You'll have problems of operational costs. You have problems of compliance. You will be a bank, even if you're digital. You know? And if you're digital only in a small city like Singapore or a small country, um, you, you, you not only will it be a bank, you would be you'll have your hands tied to your back, which is you, you would not be able to uh, benefit from being digital, right? So some of these people say to me that, oh, uh, you know, we're using uh, a certain license in, as a launching pad to be digital on a more global basis, all that stuff. What I'm saying to them is that 
you need to figure out a way to sidestep the regulator. You need to find a way to redefine finance by, by, by sidestepping how it is defined today. Uh, you should not be walking right into it. And when I think about uh, players like peer-to-peer -peer players, you know, Lending Club and, and, uh, and all the others in, in the UK, in the US, um, they, the, the whole idea of a disintermediated uh, lending business or even an investment business, disintermediated where you bring, um, you know, the, the borrower and the lender to, to uh, borrow and the, and the lender to, to, to each other, is that in phase one of the disintermediation business, the disintermediators ended up behaving like banks. They were trying to sell loans. That's what banks sell, loans. So the peer-to-peer -peer lender sells loans. A bank sells loans. And so when you sell the same product, you're actually caught with the same cost base as the traditional players. And in fact, the ones in the US, they even define themselves as selling those loans to subprime lab borrowers. So you're, you're not only saying that you're not going to compete directly with the banks, you might be a feeder into the banking system or you might set up uh, a layer which is uh, a layer below, but it's still loans. And that is thinking in terms of products. But when you stop thinking products, when you think about all the new asset classes that are originating now, for example, gaming, which is now in the billions of dollars, which have created an asset class where you have transactional values taking place in the billions of dollars. I, I don't know what the real number is, but at least one player I know has got $40 billion worth of transactions in a year. Um, you know, and you, you actually create a whole ecosystem that sits outside the banking industry, you know, and, um, and, and that ecosystem can come to life on its own. There's no reason why, you know, a, um, um, a Game Boy player in Indonesia can't exchange value with someone in Philippines or in China, you know, stuff like that. And um, it, it's, it's getting there, um, uh, you know, but we just have to, uh, we just have to keep at it. Uh, and that's what I mean by, uh, you know, sidestepping the traditional infrastructures that we have in place, because the traditional infrastructures have failed, they're not going to change. Uh, they're just going to, they're just going to wither uh, within their own realm. You know, they, they, uh, there's no point fighting it. Um, you know, Singapore may look very modern. Um, I'm looking at it right now, um, very, um, uh, you know, very solid and very modern. Uh, but it is very the institutions here are. Are already defined, you know, and um, and anything you want to create has to be around it, not not uh, not not be one of it, you know. So so that's my thinking at the moment. And so I'm looking for players who, in the next twenty years, um, who will be creating alternative universe in areas like payments, credit, um, um, you know, transactions, trade. Um, you know, things like alternative universe, uh, something will come out from there. So that, that's two major trends, and actually not trends, but already happening. There is the biggest players in technology, like the Amazons and Alibabas, which are becoming bigger than most of the banks, especially if you see in the Western world, probably Amazon is the biggest fintech and lender in the world, at least for SMEs and other things. And then we have the emergent uh, 
organizations like in Indonesia, where we have a lot of innovation in payments and different things. But some of these things, like you just mentioned, are very fragmented. How do you see these two things going? Because like you said, there's the conventional banks that are somehow buried, uh, in, the, uh, buried in, in the, the legal uh, uh, red tape and all these things. And the, 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 the giants, like, well, Square is becoming bigger and bigger. And of course, Amazon is massive. Um, but as well, the, the, the banking as platforms, which are coming actually from tech players, not actually from the conventional banks. And as well, like you said, as well, there's a big problem with credit risk that, it, that the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis is going to somehow implode. And ultimately, like you said, probably is going to take the taxpayers and governments again. So how do you see these three kind of dialects? One, the technology big players, the other one, the the emergent banks and players that are really coming up with a lot of innovation than the conventional traditional players, because these three are working in parallel. Dennis, you are a big, uh, you know, proponent of blockchain. So, uh, you know, I, I think you already have the answer in, in your pocket and, and uh, you know, you, you, you're being polite here. Um, the thing is that, uh, the short answer is that I think that the real future is personalization. Um, that's the that's the future that we we are we are all heading towards. Um, but to get there, uh, we have a couple of questions to answer. And where we are right now is this whole um, approach towards platforms. Very interestingly, uh, the platforms created in the West uh, are are being um, treated badly in the West and being embraced openly in Asia. You know, so you go to China, you, you've just got two important payment platforms, uh, you know, Alipay and uh, WeChat Pay. And on that, you can run your entire day, your entire life. Uh, you don't need cash, you don't need a bank. Uh, you know, you can invest your funds, you can buy stuff, you can go to the restaurant, you can pay for your taxi, you can call for your taxi, everything, all of that. And, and the people in China are just surprised why in the people in the US, why didn't Facebook create a, plat, uh, a mega platform that was universal in nature? Why did Facebook um, you know, very, very consciously uh, not put a payment element to their platform, not put a um, you know, community element to their platform and so on? Uh, something is happening right now in, because of the pandemic which will play out for a bit and we need to see where it takes us. Maybe it will play out for the next three to five years, which is the sense of community. Uh, the Western world will start to absorb the sense of community into their political system. Um, I think the Western world had gone a little bit off tangent on the sense of uh, individual rights and personal freedom and, uh, and, and, and uh, privacy and all of that as concepts. But um, what the pandemic is teaching Western societies to do is to say, we share this problem together. You know, all of us stay at home. You know, we will report on the guy who doesn't stay at home. You know, a lot of Western countries are becoming communist in that way. Um, and that's going to start showing itself in uh, the attitude towards shared data, uh, towards anything that is communal. So communal is now not a bad word in, in the West. Um, so that's going to play out a little bit. Um, but um, uh, what technology is enabling us to do is to balance between 
communal structures and personalization. And I think block, uh, the, the whole, the whole uh, mindset of blockchain facilitates that very well. Now, it, it may not be blockchain per se that gets us there because the way in which it's being um, hijacked by big business is total rubbish. Uh, because I've, I've, I've got in my office, uh, I've asked my research staff to, to document every single blockchain initiative of banks anywhere in the world, okay? And all of them are closed systems. All of them have the bank in the middle of the transaction, you know, and, and none of them are open uh, permissionless systems. So it's an attempt by individual institutions uh, to try and, and, uh, and use this technology and, and then corner the relationships. And that's not going to work. You know, it's a waste, in my view, it's a total waste of time. And uh, not only is it not going to work, um, the, you know, I always say this, uh, blockchain is going to be killed by the compliance department. Because just when the, just when the bank thinks that it got, it's got a blockchain initiative for trade finance settlement right, the moment you go over $100,000 in tra transaction value, your compliance department is going to call it back and say, I want to have a look at it before I approve it. You know, and then so the fact that you use blockchain is totally irrelevant. Uh, you know, and, and, um, and it will always be a pilot initiative, you know, in a way that is being done by this big business right now. But, um, but elements of it will survive. And uh, essentially, the permissionless model, uh, the original blockchain of, uh, of Bitcoin, uh, will start to, um, you know, people outside the institutions will start to bring life to it uh, in, a, in a sense of community. So I think once we reach, so what I'm trying to say here is this, that platform seems very seductive at the moment. It seems so easy. Uh, it seems to be the, in fact, even without a platform model, uh, Facebook and Google are huge net beneficiaries of the network effect. Anybody who wants to build a business needs to pay, pay Facebook to create a community and so on, even without you know, actually having an, uh, an obvious community in that way. Um, but once you get into the personalization phase, uh, that model will crumble. And, and then, and then um, the, the individual will have greater control over you know, where, where they want to transact and so on. And then you start seeing a lot of clusters. Um, so we, we don't see the clusters yet, but we do see a pushback against giving too much data to any one platform. So, um, so there's a limit to where the platforms are going to take us today. Uh, but they're very successful. And, and, and you know, the, the, the uh, lag effect of platforms um, is sometimes up to 10 years. So like, for example, in Asia, in Southeast Asia, what I'm seeing now is uh, exactly what the Chinese two big platforms, Alibaba and, uh, and Tencent, have built uh, with WeChat. Uh, 10 years later, there is a rule of winner takes all in Southeast Asia. So Grab in Singapore, uh, Gojek in, in Indonesia, uh, the, whoever is uh, uh, most successful uh, have, have a compounded effect on their success. And then the, the second just falls off the cliff. You know, so, so there's, a, there's a kind of a winner-takes-all um, rule in operation. And I, I'm sure I'm going to see this in, in the Middle East with, um, you know, with Karim and, and in Africa and so on. So there will be a phase where 
and it's a lag phase. The fact that you're successful doesn't mean that they are the future. It's just that uh, it, it just takes that amount of time for platforms to be successful. And then after that, it starts to disintegrate. And, we, and, and so platforms have to figure out what they will look like in a personalized uh, ecosystem. So two parts on that and just probably going a bit more into the of the COVID-19 crisis and how this is becoming a judgment day for not just for banks, but for the, for the global countries and, and uh, entities. How do you see this and, and picking where we start actually this, this interview that we are getting close to one hour, but it's a very in dynamic one. <clears throat> How do I see? Uh, the judgment day component for the banking industry and for the countries that you mentioned in the beginning. Yeah, so, so the judgment day is um, by the third or the fourth quarter of this year, if banks are saying that they are, that they are profitable, uh, that will call into, into question um, the role that they are playing uh, at a time like this, okay? So the profitability of banks will, will affect uh, perception of um, their role in, in, uh, in a time of crisis. Um, what is interesting is that the problems of the 2008 crisis are mostly solved now. Uh, most banks around the world are well capitalized, so capital is no longer the problem. Most banks around the world have got access to liquidity and governments, um, you know, keep their eye on, on liquidity. In fact, the Fed and, and the Chinese regulator uh, went straight into the interbank market with, by February. By February, they were already attacking liquidity and then liquidity was taken care of. The credit risk is going to start coming on in June or July. That's when the businesses that are failing will start showing up with non-performing loans and so on. Um, that can be, and then that's where the sheep and the goat get uh, separated, which is the banks that have got good uh, risk management practices and, uh, and benefiting from government stop gaps uh, will be the sheep. Uh, they won't report NPLs. In fact, uh, credit will be a source of income to them. Uh, and then the banks that couldn't figure it out, uh, you know, will be sitting on NPLs and so on. And in some countries, I, I see that the NPL problems will uh, will accelerate. India is one of them. Uh, it's already a problem, uh, and there is no stop government stop gap. Any country, with, any large country without a government stop gap, uh, will have a problem in that way. Um, so when when that gets uh, ironed out, and and what I'm seeing in the U.S. right now is that there's a big difference between the banks that have a trading book, like the Goldman Sachs and the J.P. Morgan's and the banks that are essentially domestic, like the Wells Fargo and the Bank of America. The banks that are essentially domestic do not have enough of a trading book to, uh, to, to show up uh, the kind of profit that will keep them afloat in the second and third quarter of this year. This is my take. Huh? I, I mean, this is what I'm looking at to see if I'm right and uh, whether, whether, whether it's going the way I think it will go and the triggers that I need to look out for. But even now, you will see that there's a big difference in performance between uh, the banks with more than 70% of their income being domestically um, um, domiciled, uh, Bank of America, uh, Wells Fargo, uh, PNC, uh, and the banks that are essentially global and have a bigger trading book. 
Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, um, and Bank of New York, Mellon, and so on. Um, so the regulators will be dealing with a new dimension in what it means to be a bank. Uh, they thought after the 2008 crisis that you need to ring fence the domestic um, commercial banking business from the trading book. Um, and then now they're going to find that the ones who are ring fence are exactly the ones that are going to be in trouble and unable to service uh, their local community. So, so this is the kind of um, um, you know, narrative, as if you want to use that word, uh, that I think will we'll build over the second and the third, no, third and the fourth quarter of this year. Um, and from that narrative, um, the anger of ordinary people on banks, you know, at which point will it be triggered? Already there's a kind of a resentment, which is, you know, to get a signature from a bank, you've got to go running around town, right? And I, when I make this sentence, you are nodding out in London sure. and I'm nodding here in Singapore. Okay, and, uh, and, and you'll be nodding with whichever country you're in. You know, that's how hopeless the banks have been. Uh, and this nodding is going to turn into irritation, it's going to turn into uh, righteous anger, and it's going to turn into an agenda. Uh, you know, and uh, I think that, uh, and that agenda uh, will take a life of its own depending on how, um, how you know, built up this crisis is going to look like. So um, to wrap up, we've been in one hour and of course, uh, I think we could continue doing a, a masterclass because there's a lot of ideas here to tackle. So how do you see, let's say, on a more positive model, because there's all these uh, trillions of dollars being put in the economy, uh, at least in theory. Let's make sure that it really reaches the economy, which is a big challenge like we, you just mentioned. How do you see a positive message for the, the professionals in the banking and financial industry, especially for the leaders? Because we have a big challenge in geopolitics. We have a challenge, I think, in digital transformation, because at the moment, who is not digital will die, at least until the coronavirus goes out. But even after that, because the acceleration will be much bigger, because people will have consequences. They will be afraid of getting out and so forth. So how do you see this and what message of hope do you bring to the table because you are as well a positive person and a realistic as well yeah uh, you know this this mix of positive and realistic uh message of hope the the real message of hope is that uh, economists need to be increasingly personalized and relevant to the individual to bring out the promise of the individual in whichever country, whichever political system, uh, in, you know, in whichever society. And I think that the, the promise of the individual uh, is the aspiration of people everywhere. And I travel to every freaking country, I mean, like almost you know, many, many countries. So, so if, I, if you ask me, the one thing that, that, uh, that, that uh, is common everywhere is the aspiration to realize the potential of the individual. And the extent to which financial services uh, helps to uh, accelerate that and, uh, and catalyze that, uh, not just financial services, but government systems catalyze that, um, uh, will determine you know, the next 10 to 15 years worth of uh, prosperity for any society. Now, the interesting thing about the US is that um, it has been totally dysfunctional up to now, but it's the country with the highest um, spending, um, you know, in, in, in response to the pandemic, which is two, two to three trillion dollars worth of spending. 
the difference between that spending and and what they spent in uh, during the 2008-2009 crisis is that 2008 it went to the markets, it went to Wall Street. Today it's going to Main Street. So uh, there's a greater uh, empowerment of uh, the domestic response. So in fact, I'm, I'm hearing this from Italy a little bit, which is there's a little bit of false reporting in order to be getting be able to get funding. Um, you know, for, for domestic uh, needs like building a hospital or repairing a road and stuff like that. And that's what you want um, state funding to go for, which is uh, it's fiscal, not it's fiscal and not monetary. Um, and so the, the big difference between this crisis and, and, and the 2008-9 crisis is that it's now fiscal, it's not monetary. So the markets are not a net beneficiary of uh, government resources. So that's the good news. Um, we just hope that that will result in, um, you know, in um, realizing the human potential even more. I, you know, surprisingly, in actual money, China's uh, China's incentives from this crisis is not as much as the U.S. It's actually much much lower. Um, part of the reason is because they, they cannot they don't want to pump the pump prime the economy with uh, a lot more liquidity than it has right now to create other problems but what they've been doing is they've been uh, uh, sprucing up the uh, education system they've been they've, they're preparing the education system to get an absorption of uh, graduate students uh, more than ever before for example so you you actually have people going back to school while the economy is still recovering you know uh, so, to the extent that governments do these things, uh, they actually help, um, um, you know, the, the population to 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 self-actualization, self-realization, all that stuff, uh, and of course healthcare and all of that. Uh, so, so the good news is that governments, regardless of political persuasion, are becoming uh, in, uh, directly more accountable to their to 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 the local community. Uh, which will result in good things. Um, and like one minister in Singapore said that, you know, in order to survive this crisis, you need a, a tripod, which is you need stable government, uh, you need a good healthcare system, and you need a third thing, which is called uh, social capital. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, that social capital will start to feature as an important, uh, you know, important tripod. Uh, in the way in which uh, society uh, holds together. The thing is that uh, none of this has been given a name yet. Um, you know, one of the things I find very annoying is that whenever a Westerner wants to criticize China, he just says they're communist. Uh, he has no clue what he's talking about. You know, that communist is thinking about is in 1945, uh, you know, when Stalin uh, marched his uh, armies into Germany. That's totally different. This is there's a, one of the reasons why the Chinese government responded very quickly was because the sense of accountability to local society is very, very high. They are, they are scared stiff of, uh, of being dis, uh, discredited. You know? And they've had several close calls. They had SARS, they had a milk poisoning incident, and so on. So they know uh, that, that uh, society will not tolerate um, you know this kind of uh, uh, crisis, so so they were very um, they were very accountable. You know, it's it's not just being very um, firm, but they were accountable in the process. 
And I think that uh, Western societies are learning the same thing, except in a different language. So, um, so I think a lot of the development will be in social capital rather than in financial services. Um, you know, and financial services needs to figure out how to, how to, um, uh, how to wrap itself around social capital. Uh, that's a very good way to wrap up this. And I think that this takes a lot of work you've been doing as well in the area of philanthropy and the, in the area of social impact, which is an area that you have. So um, um, I think we'll wrap up because one hour and I think it's a great, uh, there's a lot of insights here. So is there anything you want to leave for the final uh, statement? Because I think there's a lot of different areas you've been touching, but I think definitely, uh, I, I think we'll follow up probably in the future with another one. But this one, I think I wanted to have a listic about both your profile and as well what is going on. Any final uh, strike? <laughs> well, I got to get my book out because, um, you know, I, I wrote my book on the future of the financial services industry uh, to must be, I've, I've done the first draft or the second draft at least a year ago, more than a year ago. And, and then I put it away because I felt that the industry was way too noisy to hear what I had to say. Uh, and today, um, if, if, if everyone is angry enough with financial services and say that, hey, you promised three things, uh, technology innovation, you, you promised uh, greater democratization of financial services, you promised convenience, and none of it came through with the crisis, right? So something is wrong with financial services. Uh, and, and stop this, uh, you know, BS, just, just go out and, uh, and be what you're supposed to be for society. Uh, so that's one of the first, that's the first thing I need to get out of the way, which is, uh, I think that uh, I've now found my voice for what I want to be able to say, uh, you know, and, um, and I think that's where I am personally, because after 22 years of, uh, of, of 23 years of, of building the Asian banker and seeing uh, many different countries and how they evolve and you know when we first started going to China they, they used to say to us uh, you know thank you for coming to this country please bring more speakers uh, you know we want to learn from you and so on and today they, 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 they make the same presentations themselves and they're not interested in learning from anyone else because they are bigger than everybody else uh, that can visit them today so um, so the the, the um, the dynamics of the of the industry changes. Uh, you know, that's the financial services industry, uh, and of course, accountability um, and 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 this whole idea of uh, you know sharing a shared planet and, and so on. I, I don't want to use phrases like uh, climate change and so on, but um, and you know, the funny thing is here I am sitting. It's now getting a little dark, but here I am sitting and, and looking at. At, at the coastline of Singapore and just out there is uh, Indonesia. This used to be uh, the home of uh, fishermen um, who lived uh, in peace with their environment. Uh, and if you look at the local, the natives, um, their, their food, uh, there's something called nasi lemak, which is rice and fish and on a pandan leaf, which is taken from one of these trees. Uh, they knew how to live in a sustainable manner 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Um, we're just trying to recreate that universe, that the sustainable universe that they always knew. Um, you know, it's just that we've taken it off on a tangent and we've come bringing it back. So we need to have the humility to, to understand that this idea of a shared universe uh, is something that uh, we always had it. It's just that uh, we cannot let any 
someone else define it for us. We, we all need to define it for ourselves. You know? so, um, so it's a journey. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm already, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm already waffling a little bit, but, but uh, that's only because it's a journey. I, I mean, if you came up with a specific question, I, I'd probably be able to pinpoint yeah, that. Completely, no. no, no, but it's, it's very important to wrap up. So I will be looking forward to your book. Okay, and definitely I'll, I'll persist on that. And as well, I love the, I think that the way you wrap up between the personalization of the future of finance is about really creating value for individuals. And as well, the idea of social capital, which is going to be critical for nowadays. So, Emmanuel, thank you so much. It's been a privilege. Thank you, Denise. Thank you very much um, for the privilege. Yeah. We'll, we'll put the links to Asian Banker, to your social media profiles as well for people. Oh, that'll be very nice. Thank you very yeah. much. And, and it's uh, getting a bit dark in here. So I better walk in a little bit and then uh, we can end the conversation with a little bit of light. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's still very light, but actually very good. Oh, is so it? Thank okay, you so good. much. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, take care. Thank you.